Welcome to Behind the Deal, where you get the inside scoop on the wealth management industry's merger and acquisition activity, straight from some of the top deal makers in the business. In episode eight, we talk with Amy Weber, the president and CEO of Cambridge Investment Research, who walks us through some of her firm's recent deals, as well as the strategy behind Cambridge's increased emphasis on M&A. Hi, I'm Mark Bruno, and welcome to Behind the Deal. This is episode eight, and we are thrilled to have Amy Weber, the president and CEO of Cambridge Investment Research here. Amy, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to spend some time with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Exciting topic. We're excited that very much so, and especially exciting because you've been so active recently. I want to just jump right in because I know you've had some recent news. You've made some additions to the team. And you've really been investing in your M&A and corporate development. So if, if you wouldn't mind, maybe we can just start with some of this recent activity. It has merger and acquisitions, has this become more of a priority for Cambridge? And if so, why? It absolutely has. Just to give you a little bit of background on how we got here quickly. Historically, we've narrowed down our growth strategy to what we call the three legs of the stool. And our largest and where most of our resources and focus have been is on the growth of our existing advisors business. And so we put a lot of time and attention over the years into that. It's been really success and a lot of our success. And with that, on top of recruiting, which is the second leg of the stool, acquisition was a distant third up until recently. And that doesn't mean that we didn't stumble across some now and then, but we were what I would call reactive versus being proactive. And when they did come to our, usually it was simply another firm who knew us, the executives knew us, they approached us and we sat down and and tried to figure out if it made sense rather than us being more active in reaching out and exploring our value proposition with other firms, which is really what we're doing now. And so we've done five over the last five years, but I would say our most recent transaction and we've probably got five to six other NDAs and a much longer list of conversations going on because as you know, the space is picking up. Interest in having these kinds of conversations for all kinds of reasons I'm sure we're going to talk about here definitely made it area of interest for us, although not taking priority over our other two legs of the stool. Sure. And thank you for putting that into context. I appreciate it. I think if we were to just focus on the M&A piece, though, you mentioned five transactions over the last five years, but that your pipeline looks very active right now at the moment. Can you tell us just a little bit about you know, when you're evaluating opportunities, what is it that you're looking for right now? Whether it's you know firm types, personality fits, all of the above, right? What's a sort of perfect opportunity for Cambridge today? First and foremost, it's culture and values alignment. We've never been able to make sense out of acquiring just for the sake of growth and uh, buying, if you will, a bunch of independent, fiercely independent financial professionals who may or may not like us and fit in with us and fit in with our values and our culture. So we definitely take a really hard look at these firms to make sure that we've got that cultural and values alignment purely from a retention perspective. After that, it's really small and midsize. So I'd say the size of the deal that we're looking at much more seriously is between say 10 and 100 million. And there's a lot of them, as you know. So Mm -hmm. that will keep us busy for a while as we sort through all of that. And then the next thing in terms of making sense for us is really, and I think this makes us unique compared to some other buyers, We very early on start with what's important to the prospective seller, because in our leveraging our core value of flexibility, 
we don't have a one size fits all acquisition style. And we're willing to consider things other than 100% and roll them into our firm. We've done, we have done 100% deals. We've also done minority deals and majority, slightly over majority. It really depends on what the seller's goals are. And interestingly enough, a couple of these conversations, it starts with the seller coming to the table and saying, I'm exhausted competitively, regulatorily. I want out. I just want you to buy 100% to this conversation about our value proposition. And they get excited and reinvigorated about the idea of being able to stay in and become a partner of ours in that kind of a sense. And so as we start to have those conversations and figure out what's important to them, we can structure the deal in a way that makes sense for everyone. And that's really what makes it enjoyable for us. No, it's great to know. And I think your point just around you know, options, right? We talk about this all of the time. We're seeing record number of minority acquisitions this year. In our own research, we've seen three times as many minority deals in 2020 already, right? Compared with 2019. And that just speaks to this idea of you know, not everybody wants to sell and disappear immediately, right? There are great partners, firms like Cambridge, that you can work with for two, three, four years, right? Before you actually start to exit the business. So appreciate you adding all that color, right? And it definitely brings to life a lot of what we've seen in some of our research. I do just want to clarify for a moment, we were talking about the firms and you said between 10 million and 100 million. I'm familiar with some of the broker-dealer acquisitions that you've done you know, recently with FCG. Are you looking exclusively at broker-dealers or are you also looking at RIAs, branches, or all of the above? Great question. All of the above. If, that, uh, if those things about culture and values align, we're willing to consider any kind of uh, discussion. There are broker-dealers, different set of parameters around RIAs. So we've got yeah. our large corporate RIA that we could potentially allow a smaller RIA to leverage, but we definitely would explore the RIA side of things. And then one of the more intriguing ones, to your point, is enterprises or super OSJs, if you will. Mm -hmm. Some of our super OSJs and other firms are the size of or bigger than many of these small broker dealers and their succession plans become more challenging the bigger they get. Same problem that financial professionals have had as they get more and more successful. It's harder for one successor to come up with the funding, the financing and do it on their own and want to continue that way. And so partnering with those types of enterprises has been a new avenue for us that we've done one transaction. It's been really successful. Again, we are having many conversations. We could be a part of the succession plan or we can be the whole succession plan. Again, willing to be flexible on how we structure that deal, but we're really open to all of the above. Okay, good. And thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. And then in some of the conversations that you've had, you know, let's call it over the last nine to 10 months or so, some of the conversations you're having right now, I'm curious, what is it you mentioned before this idea that some firms that are sellers are just exhausted, right? And I'm very familiar with that. We see a lot of it. But what are some of the other motivators when you're talking to a firm that could be a potential fit? What's driving them to want to talk to you? And then most importantly, to want to continue talking to you? So often it is simply not having the resources to compete. You would think the number one thing uh, that would exhaust them in some ways would be regulatory. And that definitely is a component of it. But sure. making the change, many of those small firms, especially on the broker dealer side, are still in that traditional world of what I would say primarily transactional and having to make this shift 
partially to align with the regulatory environment, but just to compete with other larger firms who have the resources to deliver a different value proposition is really tough. You know, the the upfront money that you've got to put out to even remotely be considered from a recruiting perspective, they're not growing. In many cases, they're shrinking because they simply can't invest in the technology. They're not able to offer the practice management and the marketing. You know, the, in the old days, 20, 15, 20 years ago, most registered reps, to use the old school terms, uh, were looking for a firm to simply process their transactions, do the necessary compliance for them, and then stay out of their way. They didn't need help marketing. They didn't need help building their business. They didn't need help with, call it continuous improvement or project management or all the value added type things that firms now, both broker dealers and RIAs or financial solutions firms like ours need to offer. And those small and mid-sized firms are just really struggling to find their stride in how to continue to grow. They're watching their legacy because in most cases, it isn't just their an asset for them, right? It's their legacy. They're the entrepreneurs, the founders, they've got heart in it. They care about their clients. They care about their financial professionals. They care about their employees and they're starting to watch the shrinkage happen. And that starts to really weigh on them at night. I think a lot of times it's, I have to do something to protect all those constituencies that I'm responsible for, including my own family. And that's what gets the conversation going. Definitely. No, and that's very, very consistent with a lot of the firms that come to us when they need help and they're trying to figure out is now the right time. Those are a lot of the motivators, right? So I'm glad to hear that you're seeing the same thing. Appreciate that. And then just to look ahead a little bit, I know that you have an active, you know, a very full pipeline right now, but what is the rest, what's left of 2020 look like for you? And then also heading into 2021, um, what should we expect to see coming out of Cambridge in terms of M&A activity? Of course, anything that's uh, pretty far along is under an NDA. But uh, I would say at a high level that the rest of 2020 is going to be finishing up on the devil's in the details kind of conversations with a couple of deals that we feel really confident in. We've made our way down the, you know this, the lengthy due diligence process, right? Getting to an LOI is one thing. It can still be a really fun process because of our creativity and our innovation, just getting to that state. But going from LOI to APA, asset purchase agreements, lots of lawyers get involved and it's time consuming. But we will definitely appear to be hitting the ground running when the new year comes around because we're doing a lot of that legwork right now on um, a couple of those that are in our pipeline. And we're really enthusiastic about it. Sure. And I think that's an important point, too, right? With the activity levels we're seeing right now, we get asked all the time, what, you know, why is it all happening right now? Well, these deals have been in progress for nine, 12, sometimes 18 months, right? So what we fully appreciate that what we'll see in the beginning of 2021 <laughs> is a lot of the fruits that come out of the labor this year in 2020. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I do have one, I have one other question just from your experience dealing with some sellers this year, you know, talking to a number of firms that might be looking to engage in a partnership with you. If you could give advice to another seller who's a listener right now, somebody who's preparing for a transaction, what advice would you have for them in the early stages? I would say the most important thing, if I were the seller, and again, I was emotionally attached to my firm, which most of them are, that Mm -hmm. exploring the flexibility that is out there that they may not know about is probably one of the biggest things. Again, the the sitting in our conference room, having a conversation, asking a question about what they want, 
and what they're trying to accomplish, usually it's, it catches them off guard because most of the conversations for them have been, here's an LOI, this is the number we're going to give you, and you, go, you get to ride off into the sunset and do your own thing. If that's not the ultimate goal, ask for it, because I do think, to your point, we, while I think we're unique, for sure, it is a, it's going to become a more common theme, I think, as this consolidation era continues, and it will. What a beautiful thing. Imagine, I don't know how many other businesses you actually get to sell your asset twice. That's the way I think of it, is if I'm <laughs> one of these firms, they can come to us, they could sell a minority or even a majority, but not 100%. And then they work with us. They can grow, they can double, triple, however long they want to stay in it. We're willing to let them stay in it. I mean, usually retention is stronger if it's a strong firm with a great leadership team that the advisors really respect, but they need to be able to leverage our scale. So if they want to grow it with us for 10 years, it's good for us, good for them. They even make more money. And then they've got a bigger enterprise that they sell again, same assets, Mm -hmm. sold twice in some ways. And I think that's a really cool thing, but I'm not sure that a lot of sellers realize that there's those kind of opportunities out there. No, I think that's a great point, right? And it's something that is, to be fair, relatively new, right? This idea of sell and stay has become very common over the last couple of years, but wasn't necessarily something if you went back five, 10 years, very many people did at all. So that is great advice. Thank you very much for that. And we've got Just two questions we always end behind the deal with. The first one is deal breakers and deal makers, right? I know you touched on some of them, but when you're looking at an opportunity, when you're talking to another firm about an acquisition, what are some of the the, the deal breakers, right? The red flags, right? And then also what's a a deal maker or something that if you see it, you're like, all right, that's it. It just clicked. Let's start with the deal breaker first. Deal breakers. Yes. (laughs) So we perceive that there is a cultural misalignment right out of the gate is really, we're pretty quick to walk away. And usually that results in, it, it comes from a couple different directions. One is you might have four different owners sitting in the room and they all want to do something different and they have absolutely no idea where they're going. Or some of them are sitting in the room with their arms crossed because they don't even want to be at all. And we've learned that that can really affect retention. Even if at the end of the day, they all decide they want to go 100% and get out. If they don't go into the transaction in such a way that they give confidence to the financial professionals that are in their network, it can really, it can really hurt retention. So we don't spend a lot of time if we feel like we don't have some amount of agreement amongst the owners. And then high-risk activities. So quick, early due diligence, Right. A lot of high-risk advisors, advisors with regulatory issues, significant litigation. Sometimes you just can't get through that. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for us. And the other thing, interestingly enough, is if we get a sense that there is a lack of loyalty to the owners, and one of the ways that can surface for us, honestly, is that I might have a large number of the financial professionals from that firm who have already called our firm thinking about being recruited, right? So we can see that there's just something going on within the organization that probably is a red flag for us. Sure. No, that's a great point. So you, you have a really interesting lens, right, in that case into what's going on at that yes. firm. So that's that's a new deal breaker for me. <laughs> I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> Appreciate it. And then on the deal maker side, is there something specifically, uh, if you click, right, w- w- what is it? How do you know that you've got the right partner and the right opportunity? 
Just like when we are recruiting, we will, this is my favorite one, we will never be the highest bidder. So if we get through the preliminary conversations and they start to realize that, but they're still excited about working with us, then we know that's a winner. It's, it's, it is a must-have in some ways, right? Because frequently, again, we're partnering with them for a longer term than just one and done, day one out. And Definitely. if they're enthusiastic about that and we can feel that synergy, then we know we probably really got a great deal. We want them to recognize our value proposition and commit to growing something for us. So back to that, you know, what's a, what's a deal maker for us is somebody who maybe can't figure out how to grow in this environment but really wants to grow and still loves what they do and wants to do the right thing for their, you know, those constituencies that I mentioned earlier. And then retention confidence. You know, is there a way that we can, I mean, we are pretty familiar with our competition of all sizes. We know the firms where they don't lose anybody, even though maybe they don't have the resources to invest in technology. They might not be growing because recruiting is a tough Mm -hmm. environment, but their current financial professionals are fiercely loyal that also tells us that they've got a real asset there. Excellent. And then the, the final question that I always end on, you, you've done a number of deals, right, over the course of your career. But what do you know now about deal making and M&A that you wish you knew when you first started out? That smaller firms don't have the data to allow you to do the due diligence that you might think you should do before you make one of these deals. So there's a leap of faith. I truly feel like yeah. we, you know, in the early stages of, of getting involved in this, we wasted a lot of time worrying. And I'm not saying you shouldn't worry. You, you have to know, sure. I mean, legitimately, sometimes things like clients that have passed away come over <laughs> and you know that that's not a good thing, but right. they don't know. They don't always know, you know, one of the due diligence factors might be, it should be a really close look at the product selection so that you're not getting yourself into a place you didn't realize where you're suddenly going to end up with a bunch of highly problematic, complex products that are subject to litigation. They don't always know what they have, and they definitely aren't always going to be able to give you the big database that you can go in and take a look at. So it really does. We've learned a lot about different ways of getting comfortable with the firm and doing our due diligence then is a little counterintuitive for a firm of our size. You know, at first we'd be like, what do you mean you can't tell us what, you know, this, whatever the data point is that we were looking for. And I've learned it's, it's just normal. And it's something that if you're going to be in this side of the, if you're going to be a buyer and you're going to be a buyer in that space, you're going to have to figure out other ways of getting comfortable with it. Definitely. It needs to, there ease of doing business is a phrase, you know, that we hear a lot and you can sense very early on if it's going to be easy or if it's going to be difficult. Yes. <laughs> so yes. That's a great piece of advice to end on. Uh, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to walk us through just some of your own you know, personal perspective on M&A, but also for giving us the bigger picture on, you know, Cambridge's M&A strategy and story. So, so it, we've seen some more activity and certainly expect to see much more as this year progresses and into 2021. So Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Deal. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And just my parting words is no matter which component of the business you're in, the future is bright. So stay optimistic. Perfect way to end. All right, Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Deal. We appreciate it. Thanks.